Oh, like stamp collecting. No, that's all right. That's quite a nice hobby, that. Yes, but it's not enough. Don't you understand? Yeah, I'm lonely. I'm so yeah, terribly um, lonely. Every time I get a phone call, uh, it's like, oh, how are you guys doing with the heat wave? It's like, it's actually well, last week we didn't have a heat wave yeah last I mean, week it was cooler it was than normal. really nice i mean yeah. our our i've been getting up in the morning and it's been like 80 degrees it's very very comfortable yeah yeah but in cleveland what did you say what's going to be highs are supposed to be 78 80 degrees Roughly yeah, during yeah, the day. The it's 80 degrees with a bunch of humidity. And out here, it's well, like. Well, those are going to be like 68, 69 degrees. And you're supposed to have rain two days. But, you know, th- that's typical for the Northeast is having rain. but And the rain kind of keeps the humidity at, in check. It doesn't get super humid like it does in Texas or in Florida. But Well, that's what the thing is here is, you but, know, we, we're in monsoon season right now. Literally, we have monsoons here in Las Vegas. And uh, yeah, they come up from Mexico if nobody knows. <laughs> so uh, we get these big, huge downpours, and uh, that's the only time it's really humid. But when it's humid and hot, it's like, oh, but that doesn't happen too often. Yeah. But the, my question is what's the air quality going to be like with the fires in, in Canada? Yeah. You know, is it going to be smoky or not? Well, we had and fun. I know today there was news that uh, they're getting pummeled by rain. It looked said a hundred percent chance of rain and supposedly flash floods and all sorts of stuff. So, I don't know what the situation. I I would assume it's not that bad in Cleveland, but well, Las Vegas Airport was uh, shut down for a very short period of time because of the brush fires out in Summerlin. You know, we had. We had it looked like a loss, or it looked like Los Angeles on a smoggy day. You know, we don't get much smog out here. Well, I think we need to officially start the podcast. Enough the, talking about the weather. Listeners are going to think they tuned into the Weather Channel. Yeah, there you go. Live from the Stamp Show here today, Weather Complex. This is the award-winning Stamp Show here today. If you can dream it, we can collect it. I have no. Ep- idea what episode number this is going to be. We're going to put it up quickly, though. Brought to you by the Southern Nevada Philatelic Research Center, a nonprofit 501c3 corporation for the advancement of philately. You can support this witless tosh by joining the Stamp Show Here Today community. The cost is only $10 for a lifetime membership. We are an APS-affiliated club. Listen to the end credits for more information. This is Lord Cash. This, this is Scott. This is the one and only Dawn. <laughs> <laughs> so we are, actually Scott is, because I'm, you know, I was going to go to Cleveland. Oh, we're, Scott is getting ready to go to the APS show in Cleveland. I was going to go, and I just couldn't get enough mojo up to really. Well, that's too bad, because I actually got a decent rate on my flights this time. Well, how much it, you, the flights are never the problem. It's a hotel room. Well, no, the flights are the problem uh, oh. because they've been getting more and more expensive lately. Um, if I can keep my round trip flight to the East Coast around about 500 bucks, then uh, I'm happy. So, how much was your flight? Uh, I think it was $503. 
So you busted the 500 mark. I did, but I also <laughs> paid for early bird boarding, oh, okay. which I didn't necessarily get. You're supposed to get first in line, but I didn't. And how much are the uh, rooms? Uh I'm not sure because I'm not paying for a room. Oh, I'm rooming with somebody. That's so. a score. So that's uh, that's a bonus. Yes. No, that's when you can. I'm, I'm sure it'll cost me a dinner or two. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, but still, uh, the room is the killer. Uh, I remember last. Yeah, well, if if you were smart enough to book early and get in a room at the APS block, uh, wouldn't be too bad. But uh, trying to find one last minute is your next best bet because uh, you'll be able to find stuff on like Priceline and things where they you can get discounted uh, room rates as they try and fill up rooms that are going to be empty. Well, see, I like driving to the shows because then you are wide open to where you can stay. Well, absolutely. Um but, but even if you have to, to Cleveland take, from Las Vegas, even if you have to take a taxi or an Uber from your hotel to the to the convention center, oh, it's no, no, generally no. not that bad. An Uber will kill you. Something it may and it yeah. may not. Here, people going, f- we are we are a block and a half from the long end of the airport. So. If you walked here, which actually is funny because you're not allowed to walk here. Um, Las Vegas Airport does not have a pedestrian way out of the terminal. And True. Albert had that problem all the time, and he would always get pulled over by the police because he lives three blocks away from Terminal B, or excuse me, Terminal 3, and he cannot walk there, so he does it anyway. And the cop goes, oh, you're not allowed to walk here. It's like, eh, just going over there. It's like, ha, ha, ha. But... It literally, that's that's the conversation. Well, yeah, and I uh, I I but, forget who it was. Somebody came. And they Ubered from the airport, and it took them forty five minutes to make the trip. <laughs> and it should have taken him five. Yeah, we go uh, over and, and pick and people up. I, from, I, from I think part thing. of it was a language barrier, uh, and the other part was the guy wanted to follow his whatever app he was using. And the app didn't know where this was. <laughs> so so whatever he was using was out of date. And I kept telling him to make left turns and right turns where, no, it just it's right there. <laughs> but I watched him go around the block like four times. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, we are talking about going to the APS show. So, Scott, since rooms are rooms and... Uh, flights or flights. How do you make money going to an APS show? Now, ignoring the fact that you know you're going as the president of well, PSE, well, but for your personal collection. First of all, um, the cost of going to the show, travel and and room and board, are uh, relatively fixed costs. If you're going to a show, you have a budget to spend on that part of your trip. The other part is you have a budget to spend on stamps. Um, And uh, making money at the stamp show is all about paying attention. If you're sitting at a table looking at stamps and you hear somebody ask a dealer for something, 
and you've seen that item at another dealer's table, you know, you can go and go back and buy it and you can do that. Or you can say, hey, I saw this here. And sometimes, depending on how expensive the item is, you might get a a finder's fee. Um, uh, Or the dealer who sells it might give you a finder's fee for finding a buyer for his item. Uh, There's lots of different ways that you can make just a couple of dollars. Um, But uh, making the big bucks is all about knowledge, really. It's about knowing more than the next guy and the next guy happens to be a dealer. So you better have a specialty. You better have, you know, more knowledge than him. And it can be a very specific thing. You can read up on something. Oh, that's interesting. You read all about it the week before the show and then you go in and that's what you're looking for. And, uh, you know, I would say the chances of finding something when you do that is probably, almost 50-50 because you know when when you're talking about real specialized knowledge a lot of the dealers don't have that in fact most of them don't they're there and they buy and sell based on certificates based on their experience and knowledge but their knowledge is very general in most respects and uh, I mean if it looks like a Scott number 73 it's a Scott number 73 if it looks like a it has a grill, then, you know, if they don't know much about grills, they'll, most dealers will either assume it's the most expensive one or the cheapest one. <laughs> but, you know, the most expensive one on, for, for like a two-cent blackjack, the most expensive grill isn't that much more expensive than the least expensive. Well, that's not true. No. They're, they're, but there are two but or you, three you, that are... Have, yeah. Are similarly priced at the high end. Well, the so as long as it's not the cheap one, right? Then you're, it's a bonus. What I have found, and it is easy to make money at a stamp show. It is actually very easy. Um, you have people who are specialists, and when you go to the person, I'll. I was going to throw a name out. I I won't, but. Um, th- there are, is a dealer who is fantastic with U.S. officials, and he has a great, fantastic uh, stock of U.S. officials. It is great. He also carries other stuff. And I always go to him because he knows nothing about Spanish and Portuguese colonies. Now, why would you know U.S. officials and Spanish and Portuguese colonies? You, you know, you don't. So you could pick the best officials, great colors and everything, you know, recuts if there's any, you know, plate varieties or anything. He has them, but he's charging full retail. Like I said, I'll go through his Portuguese and Spanish colonies and he gives this stuff away. <laughs> well, that's that goes in both directions. You can find a dealer who's either a, a worldwide dealer or uh, has a specific focus like China or Great Britain or something like that. Oh, and you can't make any money in China. More than likely, they'll have a small amount of U.S. Yeah. that you can sit there and go through. And 
um, in most cases, it's not very picked over <laughs> because that's not what they're known for. Just like you're saying, he's known for U.S. officials, not Portuguese, but he has some. Yeah. Well, the same thing goes in the other direction. Oh, yeah, I saw China and Japan and, and uh, all Asian countries. But if you look in his box, he's got, you know, maybe half a red box or something like that of U.S. stuff. Well, because it comes in collections and it's got a higher value, he puts it in there, but he doesn't necessarily look at it closely. And uh, you can find varieties that way. You can find underpriced stuff because, uh, frankly, you know, as as a dealer, if you have a any size, moderate size stock, you're not repricing everything every year. You price it when you put it in stock and it sits there. And if the price goes up, you know, it becomes a better bargain and it'll sell. Yeah. Or the price goes down and it'll sit there and be dead. And eventually, eventually, you'll, uh, it'll reach a point where he says, oh, I'm just going to blow it out and sell it in a box lot. Or, or he'll reprice it. Yeah, that's that. But but making money or on that is basically, it from my the, opinion, you have to you collect you specialize in officials. You're going to go there and you're going to look for stuff that you can't see any place else, and you'll buy it and you'll pay full price. Then you go to the China dealer. And he, you say, do you have any U.S. officials? And he goes, no, I carry China. And you go, oh, hey, wait a minute, wait a minute. And he throws some glassine filled with crap in front of you. And you go, oh, uh, what do you want for this? And he goes, 10 bucks. And you go, okay, fine. And you walk away with $500 worth of stamps because he, yeah. does, he doesn't know that this particular cancel on this particular, uh, you know, stamp is valuable. Well, Absolutely. Absolutely. That's definitely, uh, it happens. It happens a lot. I mean, it depends on how much time you have and how much effort you want to put in. But uh, there's always some bargain. Yep. You know, you walk by and you look at the boxes and the, the box lots and the the books and albums and stuff that, that uh, you know, are selling his collections. <clears throat> Sometimes there's stuff in there. It, you know, just... Just open it up and, and flip through it, and you can a lot of times find um, better material for grading. You can find unidentified varieties that you may know of. Uh, you can find stuff that the dealer missed. You might look at a coil and go, you know, I'm, I'm really good at coils, and I can tell the flat plate fakes from the genuine ones. Well, most dealers don't count flat plate coils when they figure a lot, yeah. either buying or selling, because unless it has a certificate, they're going to assume it's fake, and uh, they're not really going to jack up the price. Well, you brought so, you brought up grading, and my favorite grading story, um, this was the Westpex that was immediately pre-COVID, and me and you and Lloyd went to Westpex, and everybody knows who me and Scott are. So, you know, we go up and, you know, we ask for graded material and they go, yeah, sure, right. Uh, but Lloyd, nobody knows who Lloyd is. And so Lloyd sat down at this dealer's table and he was just ragging on how terrible grading is. You know, it's stupid. It's whatever. 
And so Louis was just those are the there. best places to shop. He <laughs> bought. He he spent like twelve dollars at the guy and got about five hundred bucks worth of stuff because the guy was so adamant against grading. It's like, hey, not a problem. Then on the other side, you know, and this is a long time ago. This was when Brian was still working for PSE, and he went and he picked out a bunch of stuff, and the dealer literally took his stamps and put them on the back and then ignored Brian. And Brian said, oh, I wanted those. And uh, the guy looks at Brian square in the eye and says, they're not for sale. Well, that happened to me. <laughs> that happened to me. Oh, really? Yeah. I, I, uh, somebody, while I was shopping and pulling a few items out, somebody mentioned to the dealer that I worked for PSE. And immediately, as soon as I was ready to check out, stuff was not for sale. Yeah. We're well, going to get those graded. No, they're not for sale. Well, I'm a U.S. number 10, and 11 guy. I, I mean, it was, it was definitely not cool. Yeah. I mean, if he'd said right up front, no, I'm not going to sell to you, that's one thing. But after I spent the time to go through a stock and pick out a dozen items, and I was happy to pay the price he marked, Yeah. Uh, and, uh, and then he said, no, they're not for sale. I'm not going to sell them to you and because you work at PSE. Well, so what? Yeah. Well, before I started working for PSE, uh, you know, everybody knew I was a U.S. number 10 and 11 guy. And so I would go and I would look in. As soon as I started looking through their inventory, because they knew who I was, I exhibited and stuff, they'd go, oh, my goodness, he's going to pick me off. Well, that's what they do every time I walked up to a table. doesn't matter what I look at. But I don't. I literally say... This is a number 10. You have it priced as a number 11. This, and I'll help them identify it. I'll give them, you know, I won't. It's not like, ooh, there's a number 10. You know, I can buy this for like $7. It's like, nah, here. Uh, I don't need it that bad. Well, the funny part is <clears throat> I don't just collect U.S., but everybody assumes that's all I collect yeah. or all I'm interested in. And when I buy something that's not U.S. or U.S. related, why are you buying that? <laughs> yeah. Well, Don, you're you're quiet there at the end of the table. How do you buy at stamp shows? Well, first of all, I have relationships with the dealers. Shout out to Marcel, by the way. <laughs> but I have, you know, the certain dealers that I trust and uh, have uh, stuff that I collect. Well, that's that's generally true. But you should widen your horizons and and. Oh, try not a new dealer every once in a while. Oh, I do. I do try new dealers. But the first place I'm going to go is to the ones I have relationships with. But That's pretty normal, actually. Yeah. And then, you know, I'll check out somebody else. If they've, you know, got something that catches my eye, you know. I, I am a female, and, you know, I can walk by something and go, ooh. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I don't think that's restricted strictly I, to females. I, I I do that plenty of times myself. I, I have ADHD. I do that all the time. <laughs> <laughs> so, Scott, what crossed your desk? Well, I've had a few interesting items across my desk, but uh, most of it was run in the mill. Um, I recently had a uh, an E11, never hinged, that I ended up giving a grade of 100 jumbo to. Oh, that's cool. I mean, that was really cool. Yeah. Uh, you don't see those very often. And uh, actually, anything grade 100 or 100 jumbo, you don't see very often other than maybe some 20th century imperfs. But, uh, yeah, it was kind of special. This, this, I don't 
know who the submitter was, but uh, out of an order of uh, 11 or 12 stamps, I think he had two or three 100s or 100 jumbos. Yep. And none of them were imperfect stamps. One was a coil single, one was the E11, and I think there was one or two more. So uh, obviously this person has a very good eye. And, I mean, his minimum grade was 98 on or 95 on the whole order, and he missed on three or four items, but uh, he got a bunch of 98s and a couple of hundreds and, and uh, only a couple 95s. So that was a good good order for grading, definitely. I have no clue why people put minimums of 95. No, that, that kind of seems ridiculous. I mean, if, you, if you're going to submit something from 1973, then I might understand a minimum of 95, but... Uh, you know, when you're submitting material from the early 20th century and the late 19th century, it makes no sense to me to put a minimum grade of 95 on it. Well, I characterize it as like a diamond, and you put the diamond in to get certified. You know, it's your your wife's diamond wedding ring, and you actually engagement ring. I don't think wedding rings have diamonds in them, right? They do. Yeah, they do. Oh, okay. Anyway, so... It's been a while, huh? (laughs) Yeah, no kidding. (laughs) So you say, uh, if this doesn't get a certain grade, then just give me a blank certificate. And, you know, they so it it doesn't hit whatever grade. They just give you back a piece of paper that says, yeah, it's a real diamond. I mean, it doesn't make any sense. You know, at a certain point, I do understand you don't want... All, you don't want all the faults and everything to draw down the grade and stuff. So I could see putting, you know, a minimum of 75 or 70 or something like that. I do that myself. But having a minimum grade of 95 when a 90 is a fair grade is an absolutely fine grade. 80 is very fine. And I would say when you're in the 19th century, I would even say 80. Yeah. I mean, anything 80 and above would be... Definitely worthwhile. Yeah. As a matter of fact, shout out to uh, David Kugel with Kelleher. Um, Kelleher Connection magazine should be coming out. Uh, oh, it will probably be at the APS show. I'll bet you. Probably will be. I'll bet you he'll bring a stack of them with him at the APS show. Anyway, uh, I put an article into it. And visually... This is the nicest article I've ever done because the words match up to the size of the page. And <laughs> uh, yeah, you you are uh, editorially challenged at times. It, it 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 laid out well, but anyway, it was how scarce are very fine stamps. Is your name spelled correctly on it? No, it is not. Ah. Yeah, he he spelt my name with an I instead of a J. Actually, he spelt my name twice. One is correct and one is not. <laughs> so, but uh, I, I'm used to it. It's a difficult name to spell. But it's how scarce is a very fine stamp. And I show, you know, I collect US number 10s and 11s. So I show two really remarkable uh, number 11s. You know, actually, they're 11 A's. One of them is a big corner margin, and the other one shows a guideline and everything. And I said, these are worth way more than catalog. These are great position pieces, but they're not very fine. And, you know, I, I know I discussed it before, but um, actually finding very fine stamps 
is difficult. In the in the early in the mid nineteenth century, that is true. Uh, I'm going the to say all the way all stay. I mean, we are it's, seeing a lot of people submit four cent commemoratives for grading. Yes, they are worse centered than three cent commemoratives. It is harder to find a grade 98 or a grade 100 on a four cent commemorative than it is on the three cent commemoratives. Mm, I would say that's more a function of the issue. When they changed printing presses, they uh, also adjusted the spacing so that it was... um, on the three cent issues, most of them have similar vertical and horizontal separations on the plate. Where, but on the four centers, for some reason, they decided to play with the centering. And uh, you know, sometimes you'll have really small side margins and really large top and bottom, or or basically because they're rectangle stamps, the longer edges tend to have larger margins than the the shorter edges, and that makes it more difficult to grade. And um, the uh, grading, we're generally looking for a boxy stamp, you know, even on all four sides. Uh, but when you get into these more modern issues uh, where the, the the spacing on the plate is just wildly different, I mean, quite a bit different, um, we kind of have to adjust for that and say, well, you know, if it was centered as intended, then that can get the higher grades, but uh, within reason. I mean, there's a limit to that. Um, well, so usually, I mean, the fact is, is so that to get you know, they're not as good, right? So yeah. to get 98s and hundreds, you almost have to find freak stamps, just like finding jumbos uh, on earlier stamps. You you kind of have to find the ones that are slightly misperforated. To to so that they end up being more balanced. Well, that's because that's the, the way yeah. the grading system is designed. That's the thing with three centers. Uh, around the edges, they make it a little bit larger so that it fits on the sheet better. So you tend to see plate blocks and stuff like that have a disproportionate number of higher grade stamps. Now I think that had to do with the way they lined up the sheets to run them through the perforators. Oh, well, could be, yeah. But whatever it is, you know, there are certain tricks. Um, But from a standpoint of, I'm going to say all the way up into the 1980s, very fine stamps are not the norm. They never have been. I would would push that through the 80s, maybe up to 90. Yeah. Before. Now, uh, when you look at things like the modern stamps, stuff that's coming out today, there's a lot more borderless stamps where the design continues into the selvage or in, or just into the next stamp. Like a full bleed stamp. Yeah. Um, and then there's other other ones like the, the American Landmark series, the high-value express mail, priority mail stamps. Um, and even the modern duck stamps. The, the margins are pretty much, as designed, they're basically spaced uh, the same all the way, you know, on all sides. So uh, there really is, uh, you do get a lot more uh, 
well-centered ones, but they're going through the press so fast, you know. Yeah. You know, when you get off-center, you get half a million of them off-center, but when they're dead on, you get half a million that are dead on. So, <laughs> so uh, you know, as far as that goes, it's, it can be just a matter of uh, finding different stocks, you know. You know, buy it at the post office. You go to the post office and they're horribly centered. You know, go to a different post office. Go back to the post office in three or four weeks after they've you know run out and ordered a new pad or something. Uh, and you might have different, and you probably have different centering. And hopefully, you find a nicely centered one. But they, the modern stamps uh, do come well centered. But uh, up through the 80s, 70s, and 80s, and, and even in the 60s, not so much. Well, I guess uh, if you don't have anything else, Cash, uh, I look forward to seeing everybody at the APS show. Look for the PSE banner on the table. Stop in and say hi. Um, I don't have a big crew to man the table, so I may not be there the whole time, but I'll uh, definitely be there most of the time. And I hope to see you. Hope to say hi. And uh, happy hunting. We need your help. Nothing on the internet is free, including our phone and internet connections. So you can support the podcast by joining the Stamp Show Here Today Club. The cost is $10 for a lifetime membership. Please include your APS member number as we are an APS-affiliated club. Your support is greatly appreciated. Our brand new spanking address is 5965 Harrison Drive, Suite 6 in Las Vegas, Nevada, 89120. You left out the word glorious. Fabulous. <laughs> because you don't put that on the letter. Oh. Well, you could. You could, yeah. You could, yeah. Well, kids, that's all the time we have for today. I'd like to thank Sideshow Mel, Corporal Punishment, Tina Ballerina, oh, and from Not Landing, Miss Donna Mills. Oh, she was a sport. We've had lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of fun. But now the time has come to go. If this silkon was found dead in his bed tomorrow, I'd be in heaven still doing this show. See you some other time! <laughs> Stamp collecting happens when we dream together.